Hey podcasters, I just wanted to take this opportunity. This is our promo before our main show. I just want to make sure that you are part of our amazing Facebook community. It is for active creative entrepreneurs and professional business owners from around the globe. It is not one of those spammy, it's all about me type of sales groups. This Facebook group, I actually created it to help build relationships, strong relationships and conversations. But more importantly, you can also plug into some of our special events and get invitations. But it's just a great, great tool. And everyone comes from a place of value, which I absolutely love and endorse. So listen, guys, if you're not already part of our Facebook community, make sure that you go to www.facebook.com. Okay, forward slash groups, forward slash become a game changer. All right, Uh, I'll ask you for a few questions and make sure that you do that right now. Pause this audio, okay? Uh, Go to the Facebook group and uh, introduce yourself and look forward to seeing you in there. Take care, bye. This is the Game Changers Experience. Deep dive conversations with leading business disruptors, Olympic athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and influencers from around the world. This show will teach you insights about the winning principles in mindset, productivity, marketing, branding, entrepreneurship, business strategy, and more. Hosted by Productivity Authority, business strategist, former elite athlete, author, and public speaker, Adam Strong. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Game Changers Experience with myself, Adam Strong. And today we have a fun packed show. Uh, We have a very special guest on the show today, someone that I truly admire and that we've trying to been, we try to get him on the show for quite a number of months. And now is the day. We are with uh, Mark Bermont. And Mark is essentially an ultra endurance athlete. He has cycled around the world, not once but two times and currently holds the Guinness world record. Uh, And he's cycled around the world in less than 80 days, uh, which we'll talk about very shortly. Um, He's made documentaries for the BBC for the past 15 years in uh, mountain tearing Arctic circle, uh, capsizing in the middle of the Atlantic for the uh, rowing challenge for charity and was also awarded the British um, Empire Medal and the New New Queen's in the Queen's New New Year's honors as well for his contributions towards sport and charity. And he's also got an amazing he's got an amazing book out coming out called Endurance, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, Mark. But just want to say welcome to the show. Great to great to finally meet you. We were we were connected through uh, a mutual buddy through uh, Neil Fashi. So. Uh, British sort of team GB Paralympians. So yeah, good to good to be in touch. Absolutely. So Mark, I mean, you've got a really fascinating background, but I just wanted to kind of jump into this and, and get a little bit of an idea about, you know, where did the fascination of, I suppose, endurance cycling come from? Where did it come from and what inspired you to start? Well, I mean, I can look back over my career and it all looks fairly um, chronological, obviously. It looks fairly uh, inevitable. One thing led to another. It's got bigger and bigger and faster and faster. But um, I think like any ambitious career, you can only see that looking back, not looking forwards. And, you know, when I was 12 years old and I first pedaled across Scotland, and that's kind of where it started, leaving the farm and and off I went. Um, it was just the love to, the wanderlust to to explore, you know, that sort of, connection between a physical journey uh you know pushing myself as an athlete and where the bike could take me and you know there's no other mode of transport that takes you as far 
and gives you that connection to the culture, the people, the places, the landscapes. So, you know, I was never in a club. I was never racing. I was never competitive. I never had the opportunity to take this down the normal pro scene. But my journey early days was very much as an adventure athlete. I was homeschooled. I didn't have any reference points um, for what norm was in terms of sports. You know, I was certainly not kicking a ball around the playground or playing rugby or any of these things. I was, I was skiing. I was riding ponies. I was pitching my tent. I was, I was riding my bicycle. I was on the farm. I was in the middle of nowhere in the Highlands of Scotland. And so, you know, that being very comfortable in my own head, my own space is quite useful when it comes to going on these mega expeditions. So by the time I left university at the age of 22 and was talking about, you know, a finance career, um, I thought, well, what have I got to lose? I'll just go on one big trip to end all trips and um, let's pedal around the planet. And, you know, lo and behold, that ride, that documentary I filmed for the BBC just opened doors. And can you imagine going from, you know, pulling pints in a student job for, you know, those years to then, you know, everyone you know is talking about moving to London and being an accountant. And then you go on this adventure afterwards just for your own sort of self-indulgence. You know, I'm in student debt. What have I got to lose? Let's just go on a bike ride. And then <laughs> suddenly you're all over the BBC. Suddenly you're offered a book deal. Suddenly you're asked to go on a UK-wide talk tour. Suddenly, you know, people are asking you where you're going to go next. And you think, oh my goodness, I could, I could make a career out of this. Mm. And not to make that sound easy, it's been, as you will appreciate, a very entrepreneurial, risky, you know, painful journey at times. But I've been on that roller coaster now for 15 years, going on big expeditions, putting films together, writing books. And um, I love it. You know, I love being in the driving seat of my own career, getting out there to try firsts, fastest stuff that's, you know, never been done before. And uh, it's just, it's just hugely exciting to be able to match my sort of athletic endeavor with that want to build these sort of big projects. And I think that's the bit that people miss. People think it's just about riding the bike, but ultimately you've got to be able to run a business as well to get to do these things. Agreed. It's interesting. You know, I don't know about you, but do you find it particularly difficult balancing, I suppose, especially if you're leading up to a big event, you know, and you're, the training regimes that you go through as well as run a business, do you find it difficult to balance the, the two? Um, do I find it difficult? Um, I find it difficult insofar as, you know, there's no such thing as a, you know, a work life balance, you know, not, not if you, not if you run your own business and you're entrepreneurial, you know, they, they, it's not like, you're employed by somebody, you clock in, you clock out, and then you have your weekends off. It's, if, you, if, you, if you're building your own projects like this, it's everything you do. You know, you think about it when you're sleeping. It's, it's, it's your entire being. And so I'm struggling to answer the question because you're asking, is it difficult to get a balance? And I guess, my, you know, it's a, a balance of what? You know, yeah. it's, it's what... This is what you're doing. I've got two young kids now and, you know, Nikki, my wife, and, you know, I do have things outside of expeditions and work, but, but in my lifestyle is, is completely merged. You know, there's no, it's not a, it's not a binary thing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm working, I'm not working, you know, 
you know, I wake up at half five in the morning, you know, I, I either train or I, I, I clear some emails and communications and, you know, I keep doing that until I switch off around half past 10 at night. And, and, you know, of course I prioritize, you know, family and, and other things, but what I do is my passion. I, I love what I do. And I'm still skirting around the question because I think a lot, I think other people would objectively say that I don't have any work-life balance, but you know, and I struggle to, to, to switch off from what I do, but I don't particularly want to switch off from what I do. I love what I do. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It's, it's, no, but it's a really interest, interesting question. Cause sometimes I see a lot of, I suppose, business owners and entrepreneurs, you know, they just grind. Do you know what I mean? They just grind and they just, but for you, you know, you've got the mixture of, okay, let's stay physically and mentally fit as yes. well as run it. Do you know what I mean? I think that's the difference. So I'm very lucky that I, I sort of, I always joke that I spend half my life in a suit and half my life in Lycra. Uh, and it's probably not that, but you know what I mean? So I've got, you know, I've got a finance career. I'm a partner in an early stage investment fund. You know, we back early stage science, engineering and technology businesses. We've got a portfolio of 12, soon to be 13 companies. Um, we've invested, you know, and co-invested 25 million into these fantastic ideas typically coming out of Scottish universities. So, you know, my background's economics and I, people don't know that if they follow me on Instagram, they, they think I spend my life riding a bike. Uh, <laughs> I, I love riding my bike, but I spend my entire, whether you're talking about growing an early stage science company or pedaling around the world in 80 days, you're still about getting the right team around it, tightening timeframes, mm. building strategy, mm. you know, fundraising, all these key components. So you have remarkably similar conversations. And my skill set, you know, I always say I'm not the world's best bike rider. You know, I live in Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm not the best bike rider in Edinburgh. <laughs> and yeah, I've got all these world records because I've had the confidence to do stuff that other people haven't stepped out to try and you know I've backed myself I've built the team and I understand how to build these mega projects which is a completely different skill set than knowing your FTP and you know knowing how fast you can be on a bicycle I'm six foot three and 90 kilos I'm not the world's best bike rider and yet I've not just broken but I've obliterated these world records I've created these huge leaps in performance because because of planning because of team because of it's because of the strategies around it and I've failed I've failed a number of times, but you're never going to have an entrepreneurial career without, you know, some pretty significant knocks as well. So um, do I get balance? Yes, you're right. Because I can't, when you talk about the grind and that sort of battle of attrition that people feel, that sort of isolation and loneliness of uh, work, um, for me, you need to have sort of the metaphoric sort of arrows coming in the way at times, getting quite obsessed about what you're doing. And at other times, you need to get the arrows pointing the other way, be that community, family. You know, what's your wider impact on the world outside of making money? And I think the entrepreneurial journey can just become about, you know, accumulating wealth. And if if I was to break down you know, the scarcest commodity is not money, it's time. And if you, to break, if you break it down more clearly, you think, well, what, what do you want to be, you know, your legacy? It's not going to be about, you know, the size of your mortgage or, you know, your, your, your monthly outgoings. It's going to be about three things. It's going to be about family. It's going to be about community local, nationally, and globally. And it's going to be about your work, the things you're passionate about. So those three spheres need equal thoughts in terms of how you create positive impact and time. 
So I think the grind that you're talking about is if you get too blinkered, too lost in one of them, you know, you can get entirely lost in your family and work suffers. You, you know, how many people have prioritized work for decades and then suddenly realize they miss their kids growing up? Or how many people think, well, hey, I'll take third sector charitable roles and, you know, try and take on, you know, feel good positions once I've lived my career and taken care of family. And then, you know, you do these things in your 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that if you come to it late. But my point is, life is what you do now not what you plan to do in the future. And so you're never too young to start thinking about all of these things. And you can't kick the ball down the road with any of these important impacts in your life. So if you want to be connected to the world around you, there's a big bad problem out there right now. You've got to create time to address that. And I'm not doing saying this because you want to sort of be a goody two-shoes. I'm doing it because it's fundamentally good for your mental health. It's fundamentally good for your sense of purpose and well-being. Because if all you do is put your blinkers on and, you know, grind away at work to make money, guess what? You're going to be fundamentally unhappy because you're going to lack purpose and connections to wider, wider things. So, you know, it's been a horrible year for so many strands of my work, but luckily I don't do one thing. And I think for anyone who does one thing in their life, it becomes a chore. It becomes a real grind. You got to, you got to sort of think sort of broader than that. Like, how do I... How do I sort of, how do I make sure for my own sense of purpose, let alone the, the impact I can have on the wider world, that I'm, I'm actually prioritizing other stuff than, you know, work? And I think people that really struggle is just because they're, you know, their chips are in on one thing. Interesting. I, I, you know, that's, I'm glad that you've really brought that up because I, I think it's so important, especially in times like this, in challenging times like this, when people are going through and, you know, they feel that they have got to put in a shift. Do you know what I mean? But they don't really prioritize other things that matter to them. And uh, it can be very blinkered. And you mentioned about kind of becoming very tunnel visioned, which I think is a really good thing because I can, from experience, I've done that, right? I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt. So I know I can relate to exactly what you're saying, uh, which is crazy. I was going to say to you, because you've got two, uh, you've got world records and, uh, cycling around the world in 80 days and stuff like that. But tell us about your typical training regime, Mark, leading up to uh, cycling around the world, um, because it must have been quite, I suppose, full on, I would probably say. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, for those that are non-cyclists, try and get your head around the numbers, first of all. You know, I was riding 16 hours a day. Uh, I was at, getting up at half three every morning on the bike at four, riding four times four hour sets. I had to average 25K an hour, 15 miles an hour, which is not fast for for pro riders. That's a very steady pace, but it's not about doing it for a four hour block. It's about doing it for 16 hours every single day for two and a half months. So it's about making that a long-term average. So when you're into the headwinds or into the hills or things are going wrong or you faff a little bit, you know, if you mess around five minutes every time you get off the bike, that's going to add a day to the world record. So keeping, whilst riding your bike at 15 miles an hour in any given moment is not hard, to make that your consistent average over 1,200 hours is insanely hard. So how do you train for that? Well, there's no reference point in the history of endurance cycling for doing it. The previous world record was 123 days and we were trying to go sub 80. So you're trying to break the world record by what would end up being 37%. Massive. 
you can't work back from one, two, three to get to 78. So <laughs> you've got to, you've got to sort of get yourself, your team, everything bought into, you know, bottom up planning and the art of the possible. When it comes to the physical training, I would say, you know, there was 18 months of hard work on the bike and off the bike to build the conditioning. Most bike riders would fail within a week just because of the sheer attrition of that, you know, repetitive strain injuries, tendonitis, you know, you're shoveling down eight, 9,000 calories a day, but think of the load on your body from being in a time trial position, you know, so stretched out over the bike aero for 16 hours a day, five hours sleep repeat. You're going now on a thousand miles every four days. It's, it's brutal. So most people think their legs will give up in terms of training and physical strength. I would argue that, you know, it's more the conditioning, your, the biomechanics, the connections with the bike, just knowing how you suffer that position for long, long hours. Normally, as long as you fuel effectively your nutrition and hydration, your, your legs will keep going. The muscles are inc have incredible endurance in them. Whereas, you know, your neck, your backside, your feet, your hands, the nerve damage, the tendons, all those things are what will likely give up. And if you build an injury on a, a ride like that, you know, you're, you're not going to continue at the pace of nearly 400 kilometers a day. Mm. So thinking about the final run into the world, I had um, over, the, over the winter months, keep in mind I started in July, uh, a lot of high intensity going on a classic three-week build, one-week recovery model. So, you know, you've got to, you know, training is not what happens when you're on the bike. It's what happens when you then recover between the next set. And people always, you know, underestimate the power of recovery. You know, it's not about hammering yourself in doing mega, mega hours. It's, it's, it's quality training so you can then adapt and evolve and become stronger. So the deep conditioning, the core strength, the things which allow you to sit in a TT position and not injure over time is quite often not what happens when you sit at tempo on the bike. So you don't just go out for six, eight hour training rides. You're doing, you know, you're doing all sorts of, you know, hit sessions and pyramids and, you know, daily core workouts and just making sure that you're as resilient as possible. And the training you're doing is actually much, much, much harder than you'll ever ride when you're on the, on the event. When you go onto the event, it's a much lower level of output. You just need to endure it for much longer. So then in the final three, four months, you adapt all that high intensity training and all around core and work into, into the, 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 the duration. Now you're never going to replicate the hours that you're going to spend on the world. You know, most people, if you're training for a marathon, you'll do a 20 miler or a 22 miler the week before, whatever. Um, you can't replicate, you know, 16 hours a day, back to back to back to back to back. You, the, it doesn't matter how fit you are, when you jump into the event, there's still going to be a jump up. You know, I, I went from 30 hours a week training, which is a lot of training, mm. to 16 hours a day. So, you know, you can, it's still a massive hike. And that first week or two as the body adapts to that is when you're likely to get injuries, is when you're likely to break down, is when you're likely to get repetitive strains. Mentally and physically, it's brutal as you, as you sort of transition into the event itself. But yeah, in the final three, four months is when you sort of actually um, slow down, you know, make sure your batteries are charged, you know, really care for your immunology and your 
you know, you're just making sure you get to the start line, jumping out your skin and you try and build that conditioning, you know, strengthening the nervous system and, and getting used to that position on the bike for longer hours. So I actually did a 3000 mile, 3000 mile training ride around the coastline of Britain, London to London via the coast, which was a, a training ride before the world, which was 18,000 miles. Cool. Very good. Um, I was going to ask you actually, because I know that I, I know that, you know, go, cycling around the world has its dangers, going into territories and chartered territories where you might not be so f- familiar, going into, you know, hostile environments. Did it ever cross your mind at all where you thought to yourself, Do you know what, I'm a bit out of my depth there. You know, there's a lot of, you, do you ever come, how do you deal with, I suppose, the balance of fear versus danger and is this stuff real you know, and, and how did you kind of deal with that, especially when you were cycling around and, and, and things like that? Uh, I mean, in the, the around the world in 80 days, all of that was thought through before I started. So keep in mind, I was fully supported on the world the second time. Right. So going through Russia, making sure I wasn't stopped by the police and slowed down, border crossings, airports, mm. all the big unknowns had been mitigated. You know, most people... It's that old familiarity bias. Most people would see it just as a bike race, so they would train themselves on the bike. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, you'll save yourself, I probably saved myself half a day on the world record by getting men's aviation, the, the ground handlers at all the airports on board, so I would never miss a flight and they would get me through as fast as possible. Or employing the honorary consul from Mongolia so that when I um, you know, go through Russia, Mongolia and China, we've got all the all the passes and we're, we're never bothered and slowed down. So, so, so having the inside man, you know, getting on board with the right people is, mm-hmm. is, is all the prior planning as opposed to just setting off and hoping for the best. So that's, that's one part. Mm-hmm. But over the last 15 years, these expeditions have taken me to about 130 nations and territories. And a lot of them have been solo expeditions. Um, so with those solo unsupported trips, uh, yes, there's a, there's a far r- higher sort of risk profile. Um, so for example, when I was riding the length of Africa, you know, but, but it's interesting. So when you talk about risk, most people who haven't lived in the expedition or, or, or military world or business world will just talk about risk in absolute terms. It's dangerous. And and what does that mean? Like Mm. that's, that's not particularly helpful for a decision-making process. So you know, on the personal front, you have to think about the old sort of accountability ladder. What is your emotional and communication response under pressure? You know, do you tend to put your head in the sand or are you incredibly solution orientated and proactive? So, you, so, so in terms of like your own emotional even keel, you need to make sure as you turn the heat up in any situation, you're very analytical, you're very process driven. There's no point in knowing stuff if you can't do it. So that's, that's one part. But the other part, in terms of planning for um, riskier situations, you have to be able to really conceptualize exposure. By that, I mean, how likely are things to go wrong? And if they do go wrong, how serious are the consequences? So like mountaineering, you could be walking along uh, a ridgeline. That ridgeline is very easy to walk. It's got, um, you know, easy footing. It's nice and wide. You're very unlikely just to spontaneously fall off said ridgeline. But if you do fall off, there's 3,000 feet on each side and you're going to die. <laughs> so, so, that's, so, so the exposure on that is, you know, you're very, an, an accident is very unlikely to happen. But if it does happen, the consequences are very serious. Or you're on a knife edge. You know, this is a very, very technical arete. 
And, you know, the chances of you falling are incredibly high. But if you fall, you know, it's only five meters off each side. You might twist your ankle, but you're not going to kill yourself. Mm -hmm. So once you start to have a more educated conversation about exposure, you can look at any given situation and go, mm -hmm. how likely are things to go wrong? And if they do go wrong, how serious are the consequences? So say when I was cycling the length of Africa, Ethiopia, I reached Ethiopia, heavily populated country, um, unfortunately high unemployment, um, the, the likelihood of opportunist crime, people just, you know, literally chucking stones and sticks at me and uh, trying to nick stuff off the back of my bike as I pedal through was, was pretty high. You know, that, that, that did happen. I knew it would happen. There was no way to avoid that. I mean, the people were lovely when I stopped, but when I was on the move, it was often like, you know, you get chased by a you know, a, a, a <laughs> dog in any part of the Yeah, but, 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 but it would often happen. And, and kids in particular and teenage boys, unfortunately, mm -hmm. they just made a game of it, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to sort of literally just grab stuff off my bike or hit me with sticks. And I did, they weren't evil. It was just a bit of a game with any cyclist that passed through. I knew that would happen. Is that dangerous? Ah, it's annoying. Um, if you get stuff nicked off your bike, it's, it's, it's annoying. But I can live with that. Um, so... Very high exposure in terms of things likely to go wrong. Consequence from that, not that serious. Cross the next border at Moyale into northern Kenya, it's empty. It's, you know, very sparsely populated. Um, and, uh, you know, the likelihood of meeting anyone or any issues is incredibly low. But the incidents and accidents that have happened in that region in the last five years, whilst they're few and far between, are very, very serious. You know, spillovers from the conflicts in Somalia, you know, groups of people holding up um, cars and minibuses of, of people, you know, get, get pulled out, get asked to, um, you know, quote some of the Quran. If you can't, then you don't probably live. And I know those instances are incredibly few and far between, but your decision making based on that is very different than a few days before when something will go wrong every day, but you know, the worst thing that happens is you get you know, hit by a stick. So you could say that entire stretch is dangerous because there is objectively danger, but how you mitigate that and how you think about it and how you act and how you communicate and whether you need security with you or not is a completely different thing. So I think as you go on in expeditions, you become a lot more analytical and pragmatic and let's finish on a positive the more I travel, the more I trust people. You know, I've been to more places than most and people are good. People are kind. You know, people are wonderfully welcoming. People want to showcase home as something great. And, you know, you build, you know, an ability to sort of blend into any situation, to accept the friendship of strangers. And, um, you know, considering the places I've been to, I've, yes, I've been in a few tight corners and scrapes, but, you know, on balance, you know, it, it only makes me want to explore more. Mm. I love it. Very cool. Um, so I guess off the back of that, what you're saying is anticipate that things could go wrong potentially and prepare for that. Then it won't be such a shock if, the, if it does happen. Yeah. Yeah. Think it through because what you're talking about is the emotional response to uncertainty. Um, and I, I totally understand that that very analytical 
uh, pragmatic approach to to risk is not particularly helpful in day to day life. My my <laughs> wife often, you know, when when there's a massive house spider and you know they're they're freaking out and the kids are are, are climbing the walls and I just sort of pick it up and put it out. It's because I know that house spider can't hurt me. You know, I might find it a bit creepy crawly, but we often joke in the family front that, you know, I'm a bit cold about things which, you know, people have fun with in terms of fear. But maybe it's just like, because I've been exposed to a lot of danger in my life, that's been dialed down a little bit in my head. It takes a little bit more to make me jump. And um, when I was rowing the Atlantic and we capsized, there's a great example of how we were all physically able to cope. We'd all been on the training courses, offshore survival. We all knew what to do. We all had the core ability physically and mentally to to deal with that life-death situation. And yet, only two out of the six of us ever got out the life raft, did the swims, dove underneath, salvaged the kit, and, you know, instigated the rescue. Now... It asks all sorts of interesting questions about if we hadn't, would have others stepped up. But it does really speak to how you see yourself within a team dynamic. Do you have the ability under huge amounts of pressure and uncertainty and fear to remain analytical? Now, nobody's superhuman. The upset comes afterwards. But if you have the ability to keep a cool head and to become very sort of action orientated, um, it's amazing where your mind goes and your ability to cope. I mean, those were very, very, very scary hours, 14 hours fighting to stay alive and, you know, save the lives of my crew. Um, but I did so in a quite sort of robotic state, you know, even though I was, you know, it, it very, very much in harm's way. I'd premeditated it. I knew this could happen. You know, I knew what to do. I had the skill set. And I did it. And my goodness, I cried about it afterwards and had upsets. But, but you know, at the time, it's nice to know that you can switch into that, that mindset where you, you deal with things as opposed to letting fear and emotions control you. That's a really great example. I love, and I actually remember that because that was that like three years ago when you did the row. Yeah, a bit, bit more than that now. It was when I got married. So my daughter's seven. So yeah, seven years ago now. Wow, that's crazy how time flies by. Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. So, but, but it was um, a real turning point for me in terms of how I put my teams together, for sure. Mm. And it was very different from what you, you know, because you you've got a career in cycling. Rowing is completely a different ballgame, isn't it, as well? And the preparation. Yeah, but, but you're, you're right. But, I mean, there's, I, I mean, I know I'm not Olympian, but in the, at the Olympic level, there's been a lot of crossover between cycling and rowing. So mm. I think the, uh, you know, the, Athletes find it relatively straightforward to transition between the two. You know, I'm 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 tall. I'm you know quite rangy. I've got you know I'm built for a cyclist. So you know, if I hadn't become a cyclist, I could have been a rugby player. And you know, so my ability to to to, to pull a boat along was was there, even though I hadn't spent my formative years doing that. So rowing through the high Arctic and then the Atlantic, yeah, for sure, it was a new skill set. But I, I quite enjoyed that transition. And it's, it's always a pleasure when you sort of specialize in a sport to then go back to kindergarten and try and learn another sport. Because, <laughs> you know, 
you've had that mindset of marginal gains and sort of incremental improvements. So then when you go back and you're rubbish at something, you improve so quickly because you expect to be good. And, you know, I remember back in 2012 when I was challenged to run and swim across Scotland, I couldn't um, swim, front crawl a 50 meter swimming pool. And then in six months to do an eight mile swim between Arran and Butte, two of the Scottish islands, was a massive task. But because, you know, I'd cycled around the world and other things, it was within my comfort zone. I could conceptualize that. And, you know, I just needed to practically learn the skills to do it. But week on week, you see such huge leaps in performance, which you never get mm. once you're good at something. So it's it's great fun to be rubbish at something again and to to go through those formative <laughs> weeks and months. I love it. It's fantastic. It's really get it really gets you out of your comfort zone, you know. And I, I don't know about you, but when the, the thought process of doing something completely new can sometimes freak out a lot of people and they're like, oh I'm not good at that. I don't want to do that because it gets me out of my comfort zone, whatever it is. Um interesting one. I know there's a lot of confusion out there, especially with what's going on in the world with the pandemic and stuff. Um and one of the big things that I think is so topical right now is getting people to understand their purpose. And you talked about this briefly at the beginning and the impact that you can create. But how do, you, how do a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs and some of the lessons that you learned as a, as a cyclist, where do people get that from? Where can, where, can you, where can they try and figure this out? Well, I think the first the first nugget for sort of your own mental well-being is to not aspire to some moment in time, some never ever land where you've made it. Mm-hmm. So I think there's this sort of false idea in Western society that you aspire to X, whatever that is. And by the time you've done that, you work hard and whether that's financial security, happiness, health, fitness, you know, you, you know, you know, people, people want to sort of have solutions, which, fix their, you know, fix the things they're trying to fix, whatever that is, mental, physical, you know. So when it comes to sort of business and purpose, I think people are always sort of cashing in today for a better tomorrow. They're thinking, I'll sacrifice X, Y, and Z, and it's worth X, Y, and Z, and I'll justify X, Y, and Z because of, and they think they're going to they're gonna get to that sort of never, ever land. That's not life. I mean, you can dream of being comfortable, you can dream of health and happiness and well-being, but, you know, there's no fixed point ever in life. And so sort of giving you, give yourself whatever mental tricks you need to, to work hard for sure. But don't kid yourself that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to reach a, a point where you've quote unquote made it. I've never met anyone in life who's made it. And if you do, and you become wonderfully comfortable, I I guarantee you'll be fundamentally unhappy. So, you know, the human spirit is to strive. The human, the, the human, you know, we're at our best when we're figuring it out. So I think letting go of that idea that, you know, I'll cash in today for a better tomorrow is not particularly useful for our enjoyment for what we're doing. So, you know, Work hard, but accept that that it is in and of itself worthwhile. You know, people sort of glibly talk about type two fun as the stuff that's no fun at all, but, you know, you look back on quite fondly. And I know that in an athletic sense, that's sort of 
talked about quite a lot. But in terms of work, you know, when you're sitting in the pub, when we're allowed to go back to the pub and chatting to our mates, that in itself is not, you know, a career defining, life affirming moment. But I guarantee you, when you're sipping on your pint, you'll be talking about the things which were your struggle, which were your challenges, which are the things that you're most proud of. So I think it's important to sort of sort of one eye in the mirror, like how do you see yourself and what's important? Just recognize and slightly recalibrate, right? Why you do what you do. Yes, we live for tomorrow and we strive for a change, but don't kid yourself that there's going to ever be a moment where you stop. Because I think by doing that, you sort of burn out. You know, you sort of keep lying to yourself about why you're doing what you're doing. And you've got to somehow during the struggle, and it is a struggle, have a wry smile and go, well, you know, be honest, you know, call a shit day shit, you know, and it's good to be honest about your, your, your reality, but also realize that the biggest and most important thing in life is control, is choice, is being in the driving seat. If you don't feel like you have choices around what you do, or you don't feel like your efforts are, are, are proportionately rewarded, you become fundamentally unhappy. So what you're aspiring to in life is not doing less, or having made it, but is actually feeling like you have an element of, of, of control. So I think within that is a sense that, you know, purpose and well-being and a sense of this is, this is what I want to do is what's important. Not I need life to dial down and get easier because then I'll be happier. I think I think people kid themselves that they'll be happier when they, when they do less, but actually fulfillment comes from, you know, physically, mentally, you know, in terms of our community being stretched. These things are important. Mm. That's a really good point. I love that word being stretched. I just think that that is, that's such a great word. I, I, I think it's fantastic. Um, what I was going to say, uh, a lot of our listeners are business owners and entrepreneurs, as you know, and even, even sports, uh, uh, athletes and things like that. Any five top tips, five quick top tips about how they could, um, should we say, improve the results of their business, whether it be performance, what it is, but five quick tips off the top of your head. Okay. I'll try and be quick. Um, I'm a big fan of psychological arcs. So like create timeframes around your projects, mm. start fresh, dig deep in the middle, have more, even if they're slightly arbitrary, create, start and don't, don't just have time disappearing off into the distance forever. Have psychological arcs, break up time and give yourself sprints and, you know, get, get into that sprint mentality and communicate with your teams and your customers around that sort of purpose. It keeps the energy up. Uh, so there's, there's number one. Um, you know, f- f- I know this might sound daft, but nutrition, fueling, okay, we, we are what we eat. People get obsessed with fads and fashions around fueling, but if you want to be effective, at your laptop and in the office, then you need to fundamentally take care of, of your fueling. And for me, that's about being sort of carb appropriate. People are, you know, obsessed with being all sorts of faddish diets. But for me, if you train hard as an athlete and you go out and you do the big miles, get in what you need. But then, you know, if you're sitting at your desk doing long hours on the phone, make sure that you are dialing back and you literally have a carb appropriate diet because otherwise all you're doing is slowing yourself down mentally, physically, you're putting too much fuel in the engine quite, quite literally. So, so that's a good one to think about. Absolutely. Um, third, um, 
go back to that, those three spheres in your life, um, impact. So community, family, work. If you don't have a thought as to creating connections with each of those, you know, I'd say for your own mental well-being and purpose, you'll probably be missing out. Make, especially the community front, when there's big bad challenges in the world right now, make sure that you've got links to one or two of them that you care mostly about. There's no point just banging on about them on Twitter. You know, do something specific in the areas of the community that you care about. They'll make you feel better about your life. And yes, you might make a difference as, as you go. Where are we? There's three. Um, good one, mate. I'm running out. I'm running out. That's cool. We can do three. Three's good. Three's good. Listen, the three's good. So um, I, because you've done a lot of, um, what was going to say, you've accomplished a lot of things in your life. I mean, you know, you're still under the age of 40. You've done a lot of things. You've accomplished a lot of things, right? But what do you want to be remembered for, Mark, when you, when you pass on to the new world and to the next world? Um. <laughs> If there is such a thing, <laughs> let's not go there. Um, I think, do I, do I care? That's a bit glib. Um, I think I care about now. Like I genuinely care about now. And the most important thing in my life is, you know, Harriet, Willa and Nikki. I care deeply about the world they inherit. You know, I, 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 I have great concerns about the sustainability of, you know, human impact on the planet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if I could, um, if I could somehow affect the communities I live to make sure that, you know, our, our lives starting with family, but local communities as well are more sustainable. But I think those changes have to be led by, uh, politics, policies, and industries, as opposed to just individual choices. Mm. So, yeah. Of course, I've enjoyed my career as an athlete and will continue to try and make an impact. But, you know, the thing I'm passionate about is how we humans interact with the planet. It's why I invest in early stage businesses where there's a quantifiable good outside of being financially viable. They've got to be somehow shifting the dial in terms of some of the big global questions. So if I mean, personal legacy doesn't particularly matter in the, I want a statue built about myself way. I, I, I don't, that's not, that's not what I'm in this for. But, but I do fundamentally have concerns about human impact on the planet. And I do fundamentally want to affect the ecosystem of people and companies that are positively, you know, positively changing that dialogue. It's interesting you mentioned it about this because yeah, I've never shared. I think I probably shared this with maybe half a dozen people in my entire life. But one of my big role models is Sir David Attenborough, you know, yeah. because from what he does and he lives and breathes what he does. And I just, I admire that. And it's, 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 it's really interesting how you're bringing this up. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. It's not just me. Um, what's going to say? You've got your new book coming out. Uh, I believe it comes out in November. Is that correct? Yeah, November 1st. Endurance? Endurance, everything I've done. And um, I've written four books before, which are mm. very much expedition stories, whereas mm. this one is more of a how-to book. Um, uh, I was going to call it the Haynes Manual for Endurance, but, uh, <laughs> but that will be maybe lost on the younger listeners. Um, it's, I've had the chance to interview some of the world's experts on the topic, everything from sleep specialists, strength and conditioning, you know, female athletes, 
every interesting aspect of what allows us to endure. So I'm a great believer, young male, you know, a young, uh, old, female, male, we all have the ability to sort of push our distances. You know, we can't all be sprint athletes. We can't all be power athletes, but we can all go further. So I've tried to sort of unpack that toolkit that allows people to go on endurance journeys, whether that is a big sportif ride or cycling around the world. And um, yeah, it's been three short months to write another book alongside other things, but I've enjoyed it. Very cool. Um, actually, a personal question from me, because this is kind of... Um, I'm kind of thinking for me, um, I'm actually thinking about doing some sort of Guinness World Record. Uh, I haven't oh, cool. decided on what that's going to be. I don't know what it's going to look like right now, but any tips or pre- in terms of preparation and strategy for me uh, in thinking about what I, what I should do? Guinness World Records are... Um, Great fun, you know. I think there's a kid inside all of us that wants to do a first, a fastest, get in that book. Keep in mind that not all the records actually get in the book. There's a big database that aren't there. Um, finding something that fits within their criteria mm. and something that's within your, you know, within your gift is actually the hard bit. So it's pretty easy to go on the Guinness World uh, Guinness Web uh, Guinness World Record website and do searches for records and see what that, and I think that's a great place to start. And it might sound blindingly obvious, but people spend their entire time going out and doing stuff, claiming it as a Guinness World Record, and then realizing that they don't verify it. So you need to to know what you're going for. I mean, it happened last week with somebody going for the North Coast 500 and, you know, all over the BBC website calling it a Guinness World Record. It's not a Guinness World Record. So I think, you know, I'd say the kid inside us, I would love to see everyone on the planet trying to get their own world record because we're all good at something there's something we can push um so then geeking out on the detail of how you're going to do it and figuring out what's gone before but how you're going to do it differently is great fun so you know whether you decide to do it in sport Uh, you know on a bicycle and doing something in endurance or you know some some amazing talent or trick or you know something entirely different um you know growing the world's largest tomato you know the the cool thing about Guinness World Records is it's the, it's still childlike, you know. It's still it's still that um, it's still that book you got for Christmas. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I th- I don't think I'll ever grow out of that. There's something wonderfully novel about it. And when you do have that short list of ideas, um, Adam, please, do do come back to me. We'll we'll brainstorm how to yeah. how to crack that record. I, I think I think I'm definitely going to need that. I, this is, by the way, guys. If you're listening, if you're listening to this, if you've got this far, this was the first time that I've actually revealed that I was thinking about doing a Guinness World World Record. So I just wanted to kind of put that in there, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, um, I we've had an amazing amount of tips and insights from you. Is there anything that we can do for you? I know that some of our listeners and from around the world would love to help out. Because uh, I know that you've done a lot of stuff for charity, you've done a lot of stuff for sport and sporting world and things like that. So, anything we can do for you? Yeah, we've 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 covered a lot of interesting themes there. So, well led, Adam. Um, obviously, I spend a huge amount of my time doing events and conferencing, and that's all sort of uh, fallen off the cliff this year. So, I've sort of pivoted to doing a lot of that online. So, if there's any themes that we've been talking about which resonate with business owners and leaders listening to the podcast, then, then get in touch. You know, we can do online sessions like this mm. with, with your teams. You know, uh, I, used to, I used to do half a dozen of them a month, whereas, whereas now businesses are trying to figure out how to motivate their teams, adapt to working from home, build these really 
key messages around sort of purpose and mental well-being. So I've enjoyed the challenge of doing more events online. And if there's anyone listening that wants to, to reach out and organize uh, some of them, then let's, let's do it. Awesome. Very cool. Listen, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I literally, I've got like my notebook here and I've just been filling up my notebook. So um, I, I just, I'm a big fan of you. I think, uh, I think you've given us some great insights and, and I love it the way that you've related sport into the entrepreneurship, which is what the show's all about. And I love that. So I just want to say thank you. Pleasure. Great to chat. So listen, guys, I uh, hope you've enjoyed today. Uh, do me a favor, click. Um, if you want to connect with Mark, do so on the links below and uh, make sure that you check out his books that he's already got a, a couple of books out on Amazon around the world in 80 days. I think one of them's called, I believe. Yeah, that's right. And um, Endurance, which comes out in November of 2020, uh, which is going to be super fantastic. Uh, but also was going to say, please feel free to connect with Mark on social media. Do mention the Game Changers Experience uh, podcast because then he knows where, he, where you've come from. Um, so listen, guys, I hope you've enjoyed today. Uh, and we'll see you on the next Game Changers Experience podcast. Take care. See you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for listening in to this episode of the Game Changers Experience. I hope that you got some amazing value, some great insights and golden nuggets that you can implement into your business straight away. I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star review on the button below. Have a fantastic day and we'll see you on the next episode. Take care.